Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. RacketCon is October 7th and 8th at the University of Washington and includes one day of speakers and one day of collaborative hacking. Their keynote speakers are CS professors Dan Friedman, co-author of the classic reference Essentials of Programming Languages, and Will Burr, inventor of Minicameron. Details and tickets are available through the webpage at con.racket-lang.org. Celebrate the 10th anniversary of the release of Closure, October 12th through the 14th, at the Closure Con in Baltimore, Maryland. The schedule and speakers have been announced, and registration is open. For more information, visit 2017.closure-conj.org. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain, on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are sold out, but student tickets and regular price tickets are still available. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. Code Mesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. Keynote speakers David Turner and Margot Seltzer are already confirmed. Speakers have been announced and early bird ticket sales have started. For more details and to register, visit www.codemesh.io. MoonConf will be taking place in Phoenix, Arizona, November 9th through the 11th. MoonConf is a three-day conference for the functional programming community to learn and celebrate together. There will be single-track talks on Thursday and Friday and an all-day open space unconference on Saturday. For more information, visit www.moonconf.org. Closure Sync is a new conference by the creator of PurelyFunctional.tv, Eric Normand. Set in New Orleans February 15th and 16th of 2018, Closure Sync is all about the craft, business, and culture of programming. Go to ClosureSync.com, that's ClosureSync.com, to sign up. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. The 2018 Lambda Days Call for Papers is now open. Submit your proposal for a chance to join Jose Valim, Feline Hermans, Philip Wadler, Heather Miller, and others on their stage in February. The call for talks is open until October 30th, and a research track is available as well. The last of the very early bird tickets are on sales, so get them while you can. And if you don't manage to catch the very early bird tickets, don't worry. Early bird ticket sales start on October 1st and will last for a month. For more information, to submit your talk proposal, and register, visit www.lambdadays.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com fngeekery and a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast director, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Harris Proctor, and this week with us we have Zach Kesson. Zach, welcome back to the show. It's been a while since you've been on. In fact, episode number four, so it's been a while, and let's catch up. What have you been up to in the meantime? Oh, I've been up to a lot of things. So, let's see. Moved to a new city. Moved to London and back in there somewhere. You know, and moved into new technologies, which is, I think, the actual interesting bit. I'm spending a lot of my time now still in Erlang. And then a lot of my time in Elm. And between the two, I'm having a lot of fun. But I'm sort of spending a lot of time thinking about Elm. 
even if Erlang is still somewhat paying the bills as of right now. And we got you on as an early introduction to Erlang. You were doing the Mostly Erlang podcast around that time. You had made the transition from doing web development and doing other languages and JavaScript, moving into Erlang. And now you just mentioned you've gotten into Elm and you're making a strong push for Elm. What was the first exposure to Elm and what started that transition of starting you looking at Elm? So I first found Elm about two, two and a half years ago. I forget where I saw it first. I just sort of was vaguely on my radar as somebody who likes functional programming. And I tried it and I couldn't quite figure it out. This is probably version 14 or so. And then I met up with Evan at CodeMesh two years ago, which was a fabulous conference. If you get a chance to go watch the videos from 2015, CodeMesh, the talks on Ada Lovelace and Admiral Grace Hopper, as well as Browning Troutwine's talk on the Apollo moon landing systems are amazing, but that's neither here nor there. But then I managed to sit with Evan for a day afterwards, and he sort of got me started on Elm. And this was on 0.15, which is radically different than the current version, which is 0.18. The language has changed quite a bit, and in my opinion, approved a lot. There were a number of features in 0.15 that were really confusing to use, mailboxes and signals and stuff, and they just went away. But I've been doing web development for longer than I care to admit, somewhere in the order of 22 years. Built my first web application somewhere around 1994 using Perl version 4, maybe version 5. Version 5 was either just about to come out or had just come out at the point. And the MSQL database, MySQL, did not exist yet. So, you know, I've been doing this since, you know, rocks were soft and was kind of on the feasibility study for Dirt. And, you know, in that time, front-end web apps went from, hey, here's a thing to calculate interest on a loan, which is, you know, a couple buttons and have two form fields or something, to Google Docs and, you know, these ginormous things that would have been a desktop application. 10 or 15 years earlier. And somewhere along the line in there, I did a lot of, I was doing a lot of JavaScript front end work. And I came to the conclusion that this stuff really sucks. I mean, there's no polite way to put it. Front end development in JavaScript is painful. It is not fun. And I said, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. Somebody must have solved this problem. You know, the tool that was appropriate for building that loan calculator back in 1995 on a credit union website or something is not necessarily the right tools for building large, complicated front-end applications. And I looked at a couple of things. I looked at CoffeeScript, which was a real but minor improvement on JavaScript. I looked at ClojureScript briefly, which never spoke to me, which some people love, but never spoke to me. And I looked at a couple other things, and I eventually settled on Elm. And I'm like, ooh, here's somebody who spent a lot of time really focused on what can we do to make this development process enjoyable? There's a lot of little things in Elm that I, I don't understand why other languages don't do, not even just functional languages, like no other languages, like, for example. If you Google an Elm package and you end up clicking through to an old version of the package, right? So version 5 is the current version, 5.0.1, and you end up on version 3 because, you know, outdated link. You get a nice little banner across the top of the page that says, this version is outdated. Here's a link to the current version. Well, why doesn't every language do that? There's nothing specific that you'd need a type system for for that. It's just like common courtesy. Other thing is like Elm tools tend to have very obvious names. The Elm Markdown package is called Elm Markdown. I mean, in Ruby, there's a 
testing framework called Cucumber. And it's like, are you testing your software or making a salad? And just to be fair, it's not just Ruby. I mean, the Erlang build tool is called Rebar and the you know, Haskell one is Stackage. And, you know, you could say this about a dozen different languages. Somebody was being cute with the name and not actually descriptive. All right. Now I feel like the old guy who's about to shout, you know, back in my day, we walked six miles to school uphill. But, you know, we didn't have IDs. We had to hold a magnet over the hard drive. All right. I'm not actually that old. And anyway, I just settled on, you know, what can I do to make my life easier as a developer? That's how I got to Erlang, too. It's like, well, you know, what solves these problems? Hey, look, Erlang solved all these problems I have in web development 15 years, 20 years earlier in, in the telecom space. Elm is like, well, we've taken this stuff from academic computer science. We've taken some good ideas from Haskell. We've taken some ideas from OCaml and F-sharp and other places. And we sort of tried to synthesize them into what can be a very enjoyable front-end language that JavaScript people tend to love and Haskell people tend to hate. So that's sort of my story in a sort of roundabout, convoluted sort of way. So is that conversation with Evan really the first time it really got put on your radar as something serious or was there? I'd seen some YouTube videos before that. I think I'd even tried it and couldn't quite figure it out. But I really did think that Evan sitting down and sort of walking me through how to set up what was then the very early beginnings of the Elm architecture. That was not a mandatory thing. You were still talking lifts and things like that and early versions of Elm that were Less obvious, you can go check them out in the Wayback Machine. Or the Elmtown podcast had a couple history series that talked about that as well. But, you know, the current version of the Elm architecture, I think, is much easier to understand. And I think they've been working towards, you know, making it, making it more understandable. There are some languages that I think Haskell fits this category where it feels like there's a tax on extra characters. If you type more characters and you strictly speed to, somebody's going to come along and dock your paycheck. And especially when you go to try to read it six months later, it can make it really hard. I always say that the past tense of I know what I'm doing is what in the blazes was I thinking. I'm sure you've all, everybody listening to seen code that they themselves wrote six months earlier. And they look back and go, I have no idea what's going on here. No idea. How did this thing even compile? Never mind, run. And so you sat with Evan. Yeah, I sat with Evan. Was that the just getting down and over the Elm architecture? Or were there any other things that he helped you kind of get up to speed with? How to get started, I don't remember. It was two years ago. And the Elm architecture at the time looked very different than it does now. I mean, the, the, the broad ideas were the same, but there's still a lot of... The abstraction was a lot more less clean in those days. Because they didn't start with the Elm architecture. They started with these idea of lip signals and... Basically, where you had a value of, that would change over time, and you sort of different values and FR, this whole FRP thing. And they kind of realized that that was not the optimal way to build a graphic front end application, and things adapted. But you know, I think one hard part about Elm is it does look very different than JavaScript, and it's not better or worse; it's just different. But if you've been doing JavaScript for five years or ten years, there's a learning curve there. Especially if you're not used to functional languages and ML family functional languages at that. I'd been spending my time in functional languages before that, but it had been Erlang and some Scheme back in the day, and I did some Prolog at some point. There's a fun language you should do. An ep- if you haven't done an episode on Prolog, you should definitely talk to somebody who knows it better than I do. But that's a cool language. And, you know, 
I was not particularly detailed into the ML family of languages, but you know, it's a fairly easy, you, once you get the hang of it, it's fairly straightforward. It's just getting over that initial hump that takes some, oh, you know, what do I do here? And thankfully for Elm, in version 15, the error messages were, not, were okay, but not great. But they've been under steady work. And in version 18, they're amazing. And it's just like, you get it wrong, something wrong. And the compiler usually is very good at telling you exactly what you did wrong and how to fix it. And almost everything that would be a runtime error in JavaScript is a compiler error in Elm. Accidentally crashing an Elm program takes some work. There was actually a recent thread on Reddit where they list, or a blog post somewhere, they list like half a dozen ways you can do it. So you can do it, but there are a few bugs in how things work that I think need to get resolved. But there, I can think of six ways to crash an Elm program off the top of my head, or five ways. I can think of 500 ways to do that in JavaScript, so I'll take that as an improvement. And if you look at my YouTube channel, I'll probably between now and then have some videos up on how to, ways that you could crash an Elm program. I haven't recorded them yet, but they probably will. But lots of content on YouTube, by the way. So, and then you mentioned the different. Now that you've got into it in retrospect, and as you were getting into it, you said it was unfamiliar. But did you appreciate the difference? Some people do. Some people don't. Some people like that complete mind shift and saying, "Now I know I'm doing something different, so I have to do something different." What was the appeal when you started, and what's the appeal of it being different now? So the different in and of itself, I mean, I agree with your statement that if you're switching between two languages, it helps that they visually just look different. Going for me between, say, Elm and Haskell, which broadly speaking look similar, they're both ML families, which would probably be much harder than when you say Elm and Erlang, which, while certainly share some ideas, and there's some ideas that sort of move between the two of them, visually they look nothing alike. You know, they were meant to solve very different problems. They have very different origin stories. Like superheroes, languages have origin stories, although they're less likely to involve radioactive waste and, you know, radioactive spiders and toxic waste, but they have them and they're important, you know, and it's just as important to know that Peter Parker got bit by a radioactive spider and became Spider-Man. It's equally interesting to know that Erlang was created to solve certain problems, and that's why it is the way it is. It's because reliability and backwards compatibility are very important in telecoms. Haskell is the way it is because, you know, it was computer science professors playing around with what can you do in programming. I actually have a video. If we can salvage the audio, I had a bit of an audio failure, but there will be a video on my YouTube channel about that as well. I'll send you links to all those when you go live for the show notes. But languages, again, have origin stories. And they're often revealing about why things got designed the way they are. Because occasionally you look at something and you're like, why did they do it that way? And it's hard to tell. So sometimes knowing the history can be illustrative. So yeah, I find Elm is different, but once you get used to it, it's pretty straightforward. I like the fact it's a little more verbose. You know, you have to type a few more letters. I'm talking typing with your hands, not typing with the type system here. On the other hand, it also usually makes reading it later easier. Haskell tends to have a lot of, import this as A, and you see A dot this. You know, it's like, well, what does that mean? You know, what does that operator mean? Whereas Elm, it's like, user dot info, okay, you know. It's, a, it's the information about a user. Okay, that's pretty obvious. So I find it makes it easier. And Elm makes it very difficult to, as I said, crash your program, which is nice because it tries to make everything into a compile time error. 
They make sure that all of those corner cases you never thought of, like what happens if the list is empty, get handled. Do you have any Elm questions? I mean, have you? I assume you've done Elm episodes before. I've done some Elm episodes and did a little bit. So kind of want to focus mainly about your evolution and things you've learned and take that story. So I guess one of the first things that kind of jumps out as the obvious is you had the background in JavaScript. In your episode that you were on previously, you talked about applying functional ideas to JavaScript. You also have the Erlang background. You had a little bit of prologue and scheme background. Those are mostly dynamic languages. Erlang, you also advocated dialyzer. But what was that idea and shift and how much of that typing mindset came over when you're dealing with even just doing typing in Erlang and doing tuple types or dialyzer on some of this stuff to actually going an ML type system in L. Right. So, you know, the thing about JavaScript is it has no types at all. And in fact, it frequently will try to convert things in a way that it thinks makes sense to make sense of things. Unfortunately, the way it thinks makes sense is often not particularly sensible some of the time. Erlang is kind of a weird in-between type because you can do things like tuple types and for that for folks not familiar with Erlang, basically you create a tuple where the first element is an atom and the second element is a value so that you might have a tuple. First element is the atom user ID and the second element is a GUID or something that is the user ID. So if you see it in a log or you can pattern match it on it says, you know, user ID data and you pattern match in function heads and such. And that way, if somehow an incorrect data gets in there, you know, a store ID gets in there, it'll just, it'll fail either in dialyzer or in the unit test or in runtime. Also, if you get it in the log file and you see, you know, if you see, you know, error, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, well, what does that mean? It could be anything. If you see error, user ID, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, okay, that's clearly a user, you know, it says user ID. I like when my code documents itself. In Elm, you know, you can do similar because, like, for example, you have a string type. So you can have a type like user user ID, which is just a uh, data type, and say, you know, user ID, which just takes a string, parameterized by a string. Same thing, because, like, if you have a user constructor and takes a, the user's name and their email address, well, you have to pass it two strings, but if you pass them in the wrong order, the type system can't help you. On the other hand, if you wrap it in an algebraic data type, it can. So you can really sort of say, okay, level one Elm is just, yay, types. It makes everything work more or less correct. And level two type is basically, to my mind, sort of black belt Elm, is how can we use the type system as a design tool? Like, if you've drawn, I assume most of our listeners have done test-driven development. Maybe they've done test-driven development badly. I know I have. Maybe you've done something with quick check or property-based testing in some language. If you haven't, I recommend it. I certainly recommend it in Erlang. I'd recommend it in Elm, too, although it's a little less pressing in Elm, because I find the type system takes care of a lot of things. But I like the type system because it just means that, okay, I have these static assurances. You know, I actually have a formal proof that my code is correct for some definition of correct. There's actually mathematical formalisms here that, you know, you can go look up the Curry-Howard correspondence on Wikipedia if you care to. It's one of those things that I know it exists, and I trust people who are smarter than, my, than I, or at least better at math than I, have stated it's a provable result, and I take their word for it. So that's really nice. 
The other thing is, like, previously I never really used much in the way of typed languages. I'd used some C and Pascal back in the day. That's Pascal with a P, not Haskell with an H, just to uh, clarify there. I'd done a tiny bit of Java, a bunch of other things. And I never really liked them as typed languages, you know, sort of the more old-style typing, type systems. And well, then I sort of came across Haskell, and I was interested, but I could never get my head around it. I'm in awe of Haskell programmers and Idris programmers, but it's, I'm not, not quite there yet myself. And, you know, I realized the problem was I didn't, not that I disliked typed languages, I just like badly typed languages or OO typed languages. My kind of definition is, of things is, if a program type checks, I can still get a null pointer exception, something is fundamentally wrong. And actually, that's even true. You can even do that, effectively do that in Haskell. In Haskell, if you take the head of an empty list, you get an, it throws an exception at you. I checked with one of the Haskell founders, and it's basically historical reasons for that, but it seems silly. And there are a bunch of other things in Haskell where you can sort of say, well, we, we know that this list will never be empty, so X. You know, we know that this maybe will never be a nothing case, so Y. And, you know, that's one of those great ideas until it blows up in your face, my opinion, so... I mean, it's what you do it with them using debug crash, but you have to be you have to explicitly do it. I think there are a few places in testing library where that is done because it's okay that it crashes. It's a unit test. If it breaks, crashing is an okay result there. Yeah, but I, I just enjoy Elm. I enjoy talking to people about Elm. I actually have you can't see it, I'll post a send you an Instagram link. I have this I put on my desk when I go to WeWork locations that are not the one I based out of him. It's a, it's a little sign. People have a little sign that says in red letters, undefined is not a function. And then never see that again. Ask me how to make web development not suck. And I, I was at a WeWork in Tel Aviv a week or two ago, and I had this in front of me. And I got a couple of interesting double takes. Cheap advertising, you know, 10 bucks for the frame, $10 American or 39 shekels, which is about 10 or $11, I guess, trace exchange rate. Figure, you know, if I net one client every two years out of it, it's worth it. So yeah, that's sort of what I'm doing. Is I just writing Elm code and I'm doing educational material about Elm. So I have a course coming out for Manning Books called Elm in Motion. Should be in early access soonish, I hope. More video editing. I have my YouTube channel, which is called Pain Free Web Development, and we are aiming this week. Fell, the week of recording has fell a little short due to some technical problems, but we're we are aiming for a video five days a week. And I had that going for about three weeks, and we'll be back to it soon. They're short. They're about three to five minutes usually. And I'm launching a training product where basically it's a weekly Elm exercise. And we'll get into a lot of the stuff that you're putting out with some of the training and getting people ramped up and helping to evangelize that. Before we get there, real quick, I want to know, I've heard a lot about Elm and Elixir, and there's a, a lot of Elixir people who have taken on Elm. You're doing Erlang proper still. How is that combination together when you're trying to take your Elm and do the front end with what you can, even if it's the side projects, hobby projects to learn it and integrating that with the Erlang backend? Have you noticed any nice symbiosis there where those two languages play together as well? They play nicely. I mean, it's basically you just define a RESTful API and go to town. I mean, that's sort of it. What I find nice is... You compile Elm down to a .js file. So I use templates with the Erlang Django template library to serve up my HTML, which does nicely. And then actually, I use parse transform library 
So basically what happens is when you request Elm from – I use Web Machine. Most people use Cowboy, but it basically – it's already loaded it at compile time. It, there's a harsh transform in Erlang that basically says evaluate this function at compile time and put the result into the thing. It's basically a, a macro. So I have it load up the .js file as a string or as an I.O. list or whatever it is and then just shove it into the .beam file. The upshot of this is when you actually go to serve it to the users, it comes out real fast. Of course, you might be even faster if you just put it on a CDN, which might be a good idea. But that works. And then in terms of just syncing them together, it's fairly straightforward. I mean, I just basically put the .elm files in the Erlang's priv directory, which is where it expects to find that kind of thing. And then I just have a directory within my project called elm, which has all the elm files. And then, you know, I have a big make file that builds everything and just builds the Elm files before the Erlang files. In terms of making sure they talk together, it's fairly straightforward, really. It's just you define a RESTful API on one point, you define your JSON API on the other side, and you're off to go. I mean, if I was doing a lot more of this than I am, and if I had, you know, sort of time for a crazy side project, and I thought I'd be able to be interested, I might be tempted to write something that can take a Erlang type spec that you'd write for dialyzer and somehow turn it into Elm code and then spit out the JSON encoders and decoders. I think somebody did that for Haskell. I don't know how. The one time I tried to use it, it didn't quite make it because it didn't map all the Haskell types into Erlang types or Elm types. Haskell has like six different ways of representing a string. Erlang has three, I guess. Elm has string. So it's just like, okay, it's a string. But yeah, I mean, I've thought about doing that, but honestly, it's just like, yeah, there's too many corner cases. It's not worth the effort. I can do it manually once in a, for the once in a couple months it happens. Not to mention, Elm tends to use camel case and Erlang tends to use underscores and, as word separators. And yes, you could fix that with the regex, but I haven't had to do it often enough for it to be annoying enough for me to just like to code up a solution. And, you know, dealing with AS abstract syntax trees is generally a lot of work. I'm not very good at it. You can do it, but man, it's work. And then you kind of touched on some of the why um what appreciates it. You talked about some of the types and having that nice reassurance in the compiler telling you and essentially that nice formal proof compared to the Wild West of some of these dynamic languages. The package, just even some of the stuff as simple as your package is out of date when you go and look at that thing. Yeah. I've heard nice things about the versioning and how that works with the type system. What are some of those other things that if you're going to say, hey, let me tell you how you can get rid of undefined is not a function, what are some of those other things that you found as just high-level bullet points that are appealing to you and others? So there are a couple things. So first of all, Elm, the way Elm interacts with JavaScript, this pure script is another language sort of in the same category as Elm. It's a functional ML family functional language to compile JavaScript, but pure script can just call JavaScript directly. So you can have a pure script function that just calls a JavaScript function. Which sounds great, except then you realize that you can't make any guarantees because you have no idea what that JavaScript function is going to do. Elm basically doesn't do that. And you basically say you have a port where you basically, it's like making an AJAX call where you send data out and it comes back in and it's sort of well typed and will fail if you get it wrong. Or the other thing, which I think causes a lot of people pain because they're a little tricky when you get, until you get used to them, is JSON encoders and decoders. So if you've written code in JavaScript, you know, you've either explicitly or, you know, had jQuery or something else do it for you, you know, you get data back from the server, 
and you either call JSON parse or it just happens by magic. And it turns into a JavaScript data structure. But the problem you run into is sooner or later somebody changes an API somewhere or there's some weird corner case where, you know, this value is a list unless there's one item, in which case it's just the one item. And, you know, you didn't count for that and suddenly your code breaks because there's this weird case where the JSON is just the wrong shape. So Elm says, okay, you know, we have to create this decoder thing, which is basically just a function. And there's some tools to automate it, by the way. No writing has a nice one. Where you say, okay, we expect the data to look exactly like this. We have this list of fields. This field will be a string. This field will be a list of integers. This field will be a this. And at the end of it, you get back either okay and some data or error. And this failed because, you know, well, you said I'm expecting this field to be a string and it was not there or was an integer. I expected this to be an integer and it was suddenly undefined. And I actually had a bug in some Erlang code where a field should have either existed and been a number or not been there. And in some weird case, the API was returning, yes, the field is there, but it's undefined. And suddenly, you know, you're trying to apply math on it, do math, and, you know, the cosine of undefined is a type error. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's like, what is the cosine of undefined? Well, turns out you can't define the distance between two points when one of them is undefined. And this was actually in a function that Determine the great circle distance between two latitude longitude pairs. So if you have, you know, this point is London and this point is New York, you want to know it's, you know, 6,000 kilometers or whatever it is, which is great, assuming that you get valid data. But, you know, as soon as you get invalid data, the whole thing goes to kerfuffle. And the nice thing about JSON encoders is if you set them up for you simply smartly, you are assured that you will always have valid data. The theme of Elm you sort of have to remember is if Elm had a mantra, or one of them, a set of mantras, one of them is explicitly make sure your data is always in the shape you think it's in. PHP and JavaScript are great for, yeah, the data is sort of kind of in the right shape. It kind of sort of did the right thing. Yeah, just carry on. I mean, when there's a thing in MySQL, I don't know if it's a bug, it should be a bug, where if you have a string field of a certain length, so you have like a 100-character string field, and you try to save 101 characters in it, it just cuts it off silently. And, you know, it's like, okay, you saved a JSON, and you read it back, and suddenly you have an invalid JSON. Well, it just happened. Well, what just happened is exactly the worst-case scenario, silent errors. It's like, oh, look, this error happened, and we don't know anything about it. I like the Erlang motto. It's like, no, stop, die. We can't carry on. Or the Elm model is, you know, we do it at a type system level. The thing about Erlang, it was designed with the assumption that one of the errors we have to deal with is hardware failure. And as Joe Armstrong once said at a panel, the best type system in the world will not help you when your server gets hit by lightning. Or conversely, when the nice construction worker with the power tools digs up the street where your cable was. And oops, all of these things have happened. There's an old rule in computer science or network computing. Never underestimate the destructive power of a backhoe. Oops, there goes the cable. But that's great. And, you know, sometimes you sort of worry about things like you know, I put out a video recently. It turns out the speed of light is actually important in this stuff. They say you can't get between New York and London less than about 18 milliseconds, and actually probably more like 40. And if you say you can get a signal between New York and London in less than about 20 milliseconds, you're delusional or lying or something. Fundamental constants of the universe and all that. 
And so when you pull in these type decoders and JSON decoders and you're specifying the types, how does that work? Is that something that you do and it just gives you the runtime guarantee? So when it pulls it back, you get that. That's one of those scenarios you get the runtime error or is that something you kind of just, it will happen, but a lot of people set that up and do integration style tests where we're going to say, let's go ping this API, do this in a safe. Hopefully we can find this out before we deploy the product. What does some of that stuff look like when you're trying to verify and validate that? Elm has what's called the result type. So we have a maybe type, which is a value that may or may not exist. So maybe, you know, if you get the first element of a list, you can either get just the element or you get nothing. It's an empty list. It's also a result type, which can either be okay and a value or error and an error message. So for example, if you have a input field and you want somebody to input a number and they put a letter, you might use a result type. And you want to parse that to an integer, you get a result type because either you get an integer or you don't. If you have a, um, I'm going to parse the string to an integer and the string is the number seven, great, you get seven. But if it's, you know, the letter Q, well, what's string to int of Q? Well, it's an error. So you still get an error. The difference is the type system forces you to handle it, which you should. You want to check that. The problem is what happens if in the case of distributed systems are complicated, right? You know, let's say I have an app in production and I'm expecting some data to come back from the server and I get a JSON back. Great. Everything works. It's wonderful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we update our server because, you know, new version and a field changes. Well, presumably you update the client too, but what happens if some user hasn't refreshed their browser in a while and they still have the old version of the client? That happens. That's a real scenario. That really does happen. Well, then what happens? Well, they're going to get an error. And then they get their Ajax call instead of returning OK value or return error and an error message. Incompatible JSON or something, whatever it is, the actual error messages, which is something, you know, something like that. But here's the important thing. Your code has to deal with that. You have to have a path to deal with that code. HTTP errors in Elm are a type. And there are, looking at the docs, there are five different categories of HTTP error. You can get bad URL, you can get timeout, network error, bad status, or bad payload, which gives you a response as well. So, and, you know, give you some message that says, I was expecting this field and I got that field. You still can have errors. It's just your code must deal with them. You must have a case statement that deals with it. There's no actual requirement you have to deal with it intelligently. You can, you can choose to ignore it in code. That's perfectly possible. Case statement, error, ignore this. And also the fact that in Elm, this is cool, everything is pure. So the way you do Ajax calls is using a special type, which is called a command, which is just data. So you could actually do cool things like store the command that generated your Ajax call. So if you get a timeout or a network fault error, just you know wait a few seconds and try it again. So want all sorts of cool invariants and types. Like if you have an Ajax call, there could be three or four phases where you have, I'm waiting for it, I got a success, I got a failure, or maybe I haven't requested it yet. So you can have those four phases as a type with appropriate parameters and then have a nice display function that sort of abstracts them out so that you know you know whenever I'm getting a Success, so, you know, we call the display function. When you get an error, you call the, you display the error. When you get a, and when you're in the, I'm waiting for a response phase, you display a nice little spinny thing. So you, basically, the nice thing is you can encode all of your logic in Elm types very nicely and make things like finite state machines and stuff like that out of types. 
So you mentioned the HTTP error codes. On those things, those at least give you the ability then to start handling. It may not be quite the same manner as you come from an Erlang, but start thinking about those failures where, as you said, never underestimate the power of a backhoe to destroy your network. Right. Or more mundanely, if you're on a mobile network, maybe if you have a mobile app, you're in your car and you drive into a tunnel, or if you're driving to the desert, south of where I live is a big, is a lot of desert area. There are certain areas where you're just not going to get a signal, and that happens. Or you step into an elevator. I'm sure everybody out there who's used wireless or you know, cellular data has had times when their signal just went to zero because life. So, you know, that's sort of a thing. And, you know, also that servers fail, networks fail. You should go look up the eight fallacies of distributed computing. One of the first one, I think, is the network is reliable. But also the fact that, as I said earlier, somebody may update a server. And maybe, you know, you're using version 1.0 of the front-end software, and they just deployed version 2.0 of the back-end software. And, well, you'll get version 2 when you refresh your browser. Or possibly when you refresh the browser and a cache updated, it has been updated or something. I use a lot of e-tags in my Erlang code to make sure that caches get updated, by the way. The web machine makes that really easy. But yeah, failure happens. It could also be that your web server got mentioned on, on Ellen or, some, or Oprah, or, and suddenly you, know, you went from getting 200 requests a second to 200,000 requests a second. And, you know, Scotty from Star Trek saying the engines can take no more. That happens. When they put up the Galaxy Zoo server, by the way, cool project, Galaxy Zoo, they're doing all sorts of neat citizen science astrophysics with that. Went to the top of the BBC website and Brian Mage retweeted it on the first day. And their server literally caught on fire. I mean, like fire extinguisher, you know, <laughs> hit it with a fire extinguisher. <laughs> then they got about 8,000 emails going, did you know your server is down? Yes, we knew. But... I find Elm is great because I find that it's just a very enjoyable way to build web apps. Every web program project I've ever been on before Elm, somewhere along the line, I was wanting to hide in a corner and cry because I couldn't solve some stupid bug. It's like, I do not know why it's doing that. Don't ask. I've been here since you know, 10 in the night. And I've been here since 6 in the morning, and I still have a freaking clue. You know, with Elm, usually it's like, oh, there's the problem. You do something, it's wrong. The compiler spits out an error message. Two seconds later, it tells you exactly how to fix it. Oh, look, I misspelled that field name. Oh, on line 37. Yeah, I typed map with two Ps instead of one P. Oh, boom, they're done. So suddenly a 12-hour debugging session has become a 12-second fix-a-typo session. And like, there's some really cool stuff. Like, for example, there's an extras, Elm Extras package that has all the bootstrap icons, growth icons you can get with bootstrap. So it has types for all that, so you can actually represent them as types. If you misspell a CSS class, well, what happens? It just doesn't show up. Nothing happens, right? You misspell a type, the compiler says, hey, there is no type euro, E-U, double R-O. Perhaps you meant euro with one R. Oh, okay. And then suddenly your 12 hours of frustration became 10 seconds of fixing a typo. So that's like really nice. Also the fact that if you've ever done a major refactoring, you know, you hope that you didn't miss anything, and this thing over here, does, talking to that thing over there, still works. You know, well, the three-unit test passed, yeah, but it's because you mocked out. This thing over here is talking to a mock of that thing over there, and you didn't update the mock. You know, in Elm, that can't happen. You Refactoring in Elm is like, oh, you make some changes, 
and the compiler yells at you, and then you make some more changes, and the compiler yells at you some more, and then you make some more changes, and the compiler passes, and your code works. And when I say yells at you, I don't really mean yells at you. It very helpfully tells you what's wrong. It's kind of like a pair program with the world's best pair who, you know, never eats the stinky fish or cheese and um, doesn't disagree with your taste in music and doesn't forget stuff. It's great. And we've covered a lot of Elm, and we're coming up on our time. And I do want to make sure we save some time for your pain-free web development and you're starting to do community building and sharing Elm knowledge. But is there anything so far we have left out or things that we need to touch on before we continue on to that? I want to make sure we leave some time to just bring up topics if you've thought of something that we haven't covered. There's lots of other stuff we could talk. We could do a three-day training course on Elm. If your company's considering Elm, drop me a line. We, we can talk about that. But, you know, I think we covered a lot of the highlights. There are a lot of great talks out there. Uh, Richard Feldman's talk, Making Impos- States Impossible from ElmConf, is well worth it. Some of Evan's talks, some of Jessica Kerr's talks are all really worth it, as are many others. Those are just the ones that come to the top of my head. You know, but I think it's just willing to, to play with it and see what you can do is the secret to Elm. And don't be afraid to dive in. The Slack channel is often very helpful, although I'm almost never on it. The Reddit is fairly helpful. I'm frequently there. My handle on Reddit is GetFinch, so that's me. And I have a channel that I'm building called Pain-Free Web Development. We'll put the link in the show notes. And I'm trying to do an Elm, a video usually on Elm, although some of them will be on Erlang and other things. And my goal is that they should be coming out five days a week, Monday through Friday. And they tend to be short. They tend to be three to five minutes. They're not hour-long videos usually. And this is very much thanks to Ronnie, who's my editor. She's amazing. With that pain-free web development, do you want to give it a little bit of a tease? You mentioned three to five minutes. What are you covering? What is the feeling of that YouTube channel and these explanations? So let me give you some of the topics that are recent as of when we're talking. Hopefully there will be a lot more stuff that have come out since then. So I did one recently called Undefined is Not a Function. It talks about the history of the null pointer exception and how Elm gets rid of it. We did one of both called using Elm types to eliminate broken icons. I did one on why I chose Elm or why I like Elm more than TypeScript, another one on why I like Elm more than PureScript. Dealing with time in Elm, which is a somewhat, I won't say it's tricky, but it's, since everything in Elm is pure, it means if you call a function with the same parameters, you always get the same result. Well, logically, you can't have a function then called get time of day or the equivalent, get time, whatever, because by definition, that will not always return the same result. So how do you do that? Well, turns out Elm has a way, and I did a video. I did one on JSON decoders, to go into the more like, on error messages. I've got ones coming up on origin stories. I've got one coming up on um, how types fit in the Elm architecture and trying to point out some of the way the type system makes it better. I'll be doing a lot more on types. I'll be doing some on sort of industry-specific stuff, like how you can present, prevent cross-contamination using types so that one of the Mars missions, I forget which one, you'll forgive me if I forget which one, crashed because they messed up kilometers versus miles, so you can use types to prevent that kind of error from happening. So a lot of it is just, and, you know, it's also going to be a lot of whatever questions people are asking on Reddit or on Twitter or on Stack Overflow that I see, or you can leave me comments, and I'll use those. will become topics. So that's that. There will eventually, by the way, somebody asked, there will eventually be uh, subtitles and transcripts, but I don't have the resource, the budget quite to do that yet. Stay tuned. So that is sort of my 
well, you're putting out there just because I want to let people know that what you can get for doing Elm, and I think Elm is a great way to build web applications that'll be, that will not accumulate technical debt, or at least accumulate it much more slowly than JavaScript will. And we'll see it's impossible technical debt now. It's just less, a lot, orders of magnitude less. And I also think it's a very enjoyable thing. I, you know, I don't like being sitting in the corner wanting to cry my eyes out because I can't get code to work. That's not fun. And, you know, and I'm sure everybody else has had those days. And if you have, that doesn't make you a bad programmer. And any junior developers out there, that means you're having a crappy day. It happens. I'd like to stress that, you know, just for the junior developers out there. You know, it's not just you. It's all of us. But I like having tools that prevent me from writing bad code, at least as much as possible. And so the other thing I'm building is if you want to practice your Elm, I have an Elm weekly training course, which will be going live in a few weeks. And it's basically every Tuesday you will get a problem with a video challenging you to do something in Elm, and you'll get a video of me solving it on Fridays. It's 15 bucks a month. Why don't we put up a discount code? Um, functional G12, that's, that's, that'll be the code. And I'll give you, you know, instead of 15 bucks a month, it'll be 12 and that should be live by the time this thing goes live. And I've got a whole bunch of stuff planned for that in terms of refactoring, view functions in terms of building JSON encoders, in terms of fuzz testing and testing Elm. And I've got a whole bunch of other ideas to queue. So there's lots of stuff going on here. And uh, I want to make Elm amazing. But the truth is, Evan and the people who build libraries are doing a great job with the language. So I want to take the flip side of that and build up the people who use Elm I'd like Elm to be things, not something people use as a hobby, but something people use to ship production code. I mean, no red ink has got 100,000 lines of Elm in production or something. And, you know, they answered billions of student questions with it and never seen a runtime error. I think that's pretty compelling. It certainly beats banging your head against a wall because there's some weird error in your JavaScript code that only happens if these four callbacks happen to hit in a certain order. And, oh, by the way, the number of possible orders for callbacks is exponentially the number of callbacks you have unless you explicitly order them. So if you have, you know, a hundred different callbacks, they can have, you know, the number of orderings you can have is effectively infinite. And, oh, look, there's one ordering that blows everything to smithereens. Good luck finding that. So I want to promote this as a way to make web developers more effective at their jobs, reduce project risk. You know, I want to be the one building... Not the software for Elm, I'll do some of that too, but build the business case for it. Why is this something you should introduce into your organization? Well, because it'll bring better quality code, less technical debt, and reduce project risk. And I think those are worthwhile goals. And I think those are goals you can sell to your management team. Let's try this little thing in Elm and, you know, see how it goes. And it'll give us these benefits. You're mentioning focusing on selling to the management team. Are you also going to kind of cover the selling to your coworkers and give the good examples of one is the sale to your management team and then one is the sale to your coworkers and say, hey, there's something here. Remember these problems we hit. Is there a little bit of that as well? There will be, yeah. I'm doing five videos a week, so there'll be a lot of everything. You know, I mean, I saw a comment recently. Somebody dismissed down and thought it would take six months to get up and running the team up running and I, you know i don't think that's yeah it won't be overnight but i think you can get up and running with some help fairly quickly so you know i want to provide those services to people but i think having an application that you can believe in and trust for an organization can be worth real money by the way elm is also fairly fast 
it's virtual bio implementation goes pretty quickly. It's not something that I normally talk think about very much because, you know, I'm a fan of the philosophy of you know make it correct then make it fast. You know, a lot of things are fast but they break. It's like the old bumper sticker. I don't know where we're going, but we're making great time. So you know, if you don't get to the right place, fast doesn't matter. And then we talked your pain-free web development. We mentioned the Elm Weekly training that you've got coming up, which should be out by the time this comes out, and we'll get. Those links in the show notes, the promo code for the training. What are some of the other places for people to follow along and follow you and find you and just keep up to date with what's going on? And are you also having any upcoming conference experiences? I know you've gone through phases where you do heavy conferences and then light and then heavy. Unfortunately, right now I'm in a light conference mode. I spoke at a local meetup uh, last week, but just right now I do not have the cash to do a lot of traveling. As much as I wish that I could. Maybe next year will be better, I hope. So I'm more doing online stuff. The best place to keep up with me is probably going to be on YouTube. That seems to be where I really don't like Twitter. I used to do a lot of Twitter, but I've kind of found that it's just... 140 characters is just the right length to be toxic and just the wrong length to have meaningful conversations, I think. I tweet there occasionally, but, you know, I don't spend a lot of time. So you'll certainly see me as at ZKesson on Twitter, but... If you're trying to get in touch with me, it's like the absolute worst way to do it. And if you want to get in touch with me, the best way is probably just drop me an email. Same as my Twitter handle at Gmail. And just let me know what your questions are. If you want coaching, consulting, etc., I'm happy to answer. If you have a general question about Elm, it'll probably become a YouTube video. And that'll probably have a few week lead time because I batch record them and then somebody edits them. So between when I record them and when they ship, it's usually about a week. And that was going to be the follow-on was if people are watching your videos and have topics to suggest. So email, maybe Twitter, but comment on a YouTube video is probably the best place to put those comments and suggestions and questions. Comments, because I mean, I think if you have comments and other people can discuss them. Frequently, I look at things on Reddit, but the thing about Reddit and Twitter for that matter is I don't guarantee that I read everything on Reddit. If there's a thread on Reddit and it looks interesting and I... I might read it, and if it looks not interesting and I'm having a busy day, I might not read it. So, you know, it's true of Twitter, too. You know, you can't read everything. So, yeah, that's what I would say is best bet is drop me an email or leave me a YouTube comment. And please subscribe to the channel. The more people subscribe and, you know, reach, subscribe, share, and all that good stuff because I'd like to reach more people. And I'll get the links to all those references in the show notes so people can come by and make sure they find them. Even though it's relatively easy to find it through a YouTube search, I'll get links in just so we can get people straight there. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Pelcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Zach, for taking your time to join me today. It was a great catching up with you, seeing what drove that change to Elm, and just hearing more perspectives about Elm. I've heard other people on the show talk about Elm, but it's always nice to see what are some of those common threads or what are some of the things that appeal to people individually. And came across your videos look forward to seeing them more and thanks for sharing your knowledge and helping to spread the love about functional programming in all your phases as you go through it. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you again. Thank you as well. And I got to say, you know, wrap up Elm is I think the most pleasant development experience I've had in the last 20 years. So I think that's good. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.